A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Stacy Kyles is like most chefs. She gets up at 5 a.m., buys fresh produce, and prepares special meals for her patrons. But unlike Alice Waters, her patrons happen to be chimps, giraffes, and leafcutter ants. Kyles is the chef at the Oakland Zoo, and while her job may sound institutional, she's actually more like a personal chef, making specialty meals for some very picky eaters. Chimps are really crazy. You can hand them something, and if you keep handing them the same stuff over and over again, they don't want it anymore. But if you hide it in their enclosure and they find it on their own, that same exact item, it's a gift, and they hold on to it like it's precious. And it's like, I just handed that to you yesterday and you didn't want it. First up, we check in with reporter Amy Gutman, who brings us the story of Susuma Kakinuma, the chef who helped launch the Neapolitan pizza craze in Tokyo. At his restaurant, Sirin Khan, Chef Kakinuma serves pies that might rival some of the very best pizza in Naples. Amy, welcome back to uh, Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Good to be back. So this is a story about Neapolitan pizza in Tokyo. And so where does that story start? 
The story begins with a really cool character named Susumu Kakunuma. Susumu is unlike anybody I've ever met before. He's this 59, 60-year-old Japanese guy who doesn't look anywhere near his age, probably because he's also into his rock music, and he describes himself as 90% musician, 10% pizza master. But actually, if you talk to people in Tokyo, he is the prime minister of pizza in Tokyo. (laughs) This guy single-handedly brought Neapolitan pizza, specifically this thin-crusted, bubbly on the outside and very soft on the inside style of pizza to Tokyo. No one else was making Neapolitan pizza at the time. 当初、まあ、so when I first started this pizza restaurant 24 years ago, back then, pizzas for Japanese people had this image of very thick, abundant cheese, a lot of vegetables, a lot of ingredients. And the two pizzas I'm serving today, in the very beginning, was met with a lot of confused looks. Japanese people didn't know that there, there were pizzas that had more sauce and cheese. So he goes to Naples to find an apprenticeship, uh, and what happens? Well, he goes around, he knocks on doors of pizzerias and pizza makers all throughout Naples, and no one will take him in as an apprentice. So when I went to Naples for the first time 25 years ago, this is 1995 we're talking about, there were barely any Japanese people in Naples. So most Italian restaurants back then were very apprehensive to taking in Japanese apprentices because they just weren't used to working with Japanese people. And they thought that Japanese people couldn't work with pizza. So he came up with a brilliant training strategy for himself, one that I would like to adopt if I were to become a pizza maker. So I stayed in Naples for one year, but I did not learn how to make pizza. I just ate pizza for one year. He decided that the best way to learn how to make pizza was to eat pizza every single day for a year. And that's what he did. Yeah, I I read that, but I don't understand it. How did he manage to be a tourist, essentially, eating the pizza? and going back to Japan and learning how to make it in exactly the same method. Well, I think there are a few different ways that he did that. I mean, first of all, we've all been to pizzerias where you can see the pizza making going on. So you can see the dough being thrown, how it's being tossed. You can see the preparation. You can time even when the pizza goes in the oven and when it comes out. So I imagine he did a lot of this just by observing. And I think he tried to stay as close to the real thing as possible. And part of that too is being able to pick up the subtleties. So one of the things that everyone who tries his pizza reports back about is the fact that there's a little, and they can taste it, but also you can see him do it. There's a little pinch of salt that he puts in the dough after it goes in the oven. And if that little bit of saltiness is there, it makes it very Moorish. It means you want more and more and more. And if that little bit of saltiness is missing, somehow the pizza is just lacking. So he picked up on a lot of subtleties. And he also readily admits he didn't come back and immediately open Sarencon. Uh, 
It took me a very long time to perfect the recipe I'm serving today. The first 12 years, I just focused on perfecting my recipe, and that's when I created the restaurant Savoy, a different restaurant in Tokyo. And afterwards, I spent the next 12 years modifying and changing the recipe to serve the pizzas I'm serving today. This notion of taking a good part of a lifetime to perfect something uh, is not just Japanese. It occurs in French cooking as well. Did you find that that was something that was part of his personality in a bigger way or that's just his obsession with pizza? I think it's part of his personality in a bigger way. I do think it's very Japanese. I agree with you. It's also very French, but that's also very much him. I mean, he is so devoted to his pizza. So I work 24-7-365, daytime and nighttime. But there are rare cases when famous musicians come to Japan, like Paul McCartney. I would like to attend their concerts, so that's when I take days off. And then who makes the pizza? I shut down the entire store when I take a day off. Susumu single-handedly makes the pizza in his restaurant for lunch and dinner every single day. So is he training someone to take over? What happens when uh, he dies or, or gets sick of making pizza? There is no succession plan. Impossible, because this pizza that I'm making is my soul. I pour my heart into this craft, and I'm not imagining to pass this on to anyone else, and I don't think anyone can actually you know, replicate the pizza I'm making today. They say there's only one Picasso. So, the day you die, Saren Khan dies with you. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, he was pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unequivocal. <laughs> so, uh, did he explain to you why he decided to focus on pizza? Well... I think there were a few reasons. The first and foremost is that he loved American movies and he loved American rock music. And so he had seen Saturday Night Fever. He saw John Travolta dancing and he saw the scene where there's a pizza in the shot that John Travolta is eating. And he just, he was struck by it <laughs> and thought, man, I gotta, I gotta have that. I gotta taste that. So I think that's really what drove him to Naples I think he's also the kind of person who loves a challenge. So when these pizza masters in Naples said, no, I, I, they won't, they, I, we won't let you into our kitchens, I think that only made him more driven to master the craft himself, you know, making the pizza every day when he could easily have other people making the pizza for him. And how was the pizza? The pizza was out of this world. And I have to tell you, there was a New Yorker having lunch when we were there. You know, she was not a believer. You know, I said, well, I'm from New Haven. She said, well, I'm from New York. I said, okay, so we're both pizza snobs. So this is the ultimate test. And it passed the test for both of us. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Mill Street. Thanks, Chris. That was reporter and producer Amy Gutman. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will try to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. 
Sarah, what's going on? Well, before we get started, I have a question for you. I want to know, what are some of your pet peeves when you go to a restaurant? Either front of the house or back of the house. Things is this they a half-hour show or is this an hour show? How much time do I have? <laughs> I want a quick answer. A bunch of things. I think the first thing is when you get to a restaurant, you should be greeted properly and made to feel welcome. There's some restaurants that feel like I'm going to, you know, laying someone to rest. <laughs> it has that feeling of sort of a funeral home. I don't want excessive service, you know. You don't want to know their name and their well, middle well, name. Well, no. Look, their... it's a very hard job. It's mm-hmm. a really tough job, and that's fine. But I don't need, like, you know, how was that first bite? Like, what? <laughs> what? I don't understand what that's about, really. I know they're doing it to be, uh, you know, helpful. Friendly, yeah. I just like restaurants to deliver on their promise. If they promise something simple like a hamburger, and it's a good burger, that's great. But if you're going to go over the top, then you better really deliver because you've set up an expectation. So I, I think do what you say, right? Okay. No, that's I fair. agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. All right. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Eric from Detroit. How can we help you today? I am on a quest to make uh, restaurant-quality French fries at home. I have tried different techniques and recipes, and they just don't seem to get to that level. So I'm looking for any tips that you guys can provide for that. I would go to a restaurant supply house and buy a used fryer later and about <laughs> 10 gallons of cooking oil. You know, that's a good question because I've been doing this for 40 years and I've come kind of close, but I don't think I've ever had a fry nearly as good. I don't know about you, Sarah, as a top-notch restaurant fry. I'll give you two hints. Uh, Joel Robuchon had a recipe you start the fries in cold, you know, room temperature oil. You turn the heat on and just fry them once. It takes about 20 minutes. And that actually works pretty well, and it's easy to do. The chemistry is that the potatoes are full of water, and so the oil's not going to get into the potato until the water starts to evaporate. So that's the easiest method. The only other one is, Sarah, is that serious eats Double fry. With Kenji, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Kenji always pursues everything to the hilt. First, he blanches the potatoes so they're a little bit cooked in water, and then he pats them dry, and then he fries them once at about 360 degrees for slightly under a minute, and then drains them, and then freezes them, <laughs> and then, I mean, this does you take a little bit of planning, and then refries oh. them again at 360, or a little higher for three-plus minutes until they're crispy. One of the things I've run across a few times in looking up recipes to do this is after you've cut the potatoes to your desired shape is to soak them in cold water to get the starch off. Is that advisable if you're going to do the cold oil method? No, starch on the outside is a good thing because when it gets hot, it gelatinizes, right? So you get crispiness. I think coating the potatoes in potato starch, oddly enough, I've talked to a lot of restaurants where they have great fries. I go into the kitchen and ask the chef. And they almost universally use potato starch on potatoes, which, you know, I guess makes some sense. Although I will say, uh, back to Kenji's method, when he cooks those potatoes in the beginning, he adds vinegar to the water, which helps the potatoes not to get mushy. You should go. It's, you know, it's on... um, It's on SeriousEats.com. Yeah, Kenji Lopez-Alt. I've devoted 40 years of my life to this. Getting a fry, I'm serious. I mean, if you have the right equipment and enough heat and enough oil... And constant heat. That does help. Yeah, Because what happens when you put the fries in the oil, I've measured, you start at 360 or 70, it goes down to 310 to 320 in the first minute. That's just with a Dutch oven with 
you know, at home. Two, two, two quarts inches, of peanut oil. Yeah, yeah, two inches of oil, yeah. yeah. But I think potato starch and maybe starting off in room temperature oil, I wouldn't say they're an A, but they're very good and they're easy to make. Okay, well, so, my quest will continue then. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, to the last dying day. <laughs> yes, yes. Eric, give that a shot. You're a brave man. I will. Thank you yeah. very much. Take Dino. care. I appreciate it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Linda. Hey, Linda. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Portland, Oregon. How can we help you? Last fall, you did a show where you talked about Spanish almond cake. Uh-huh. It was a really amazing recipe. I printed it. I have made it dozens of times since then. And uh, my husband is gluten-free, so I was excited because the recipe doesn't need any special flowers, any special ingredients, and every time I make it, I get rave reviews. So I was wondering if there are other, you know, traditional recipes for a baked dessert that I could make without having to alter the ingredients. So you're saying recipes from different countries that just don't ever use flour. Exactly. And I, of course, know about macaroons, and I know about meringues. In our experience, almond flour is a pretty good substitute like any kind of single-layer cake, like a pound cake, for example, there's I think we've made an orange pound cake that uses almond flour. I think almond flour as a substitute, you have to unfortunately change the recipe a little bit, but that works for a lot of those one-layer cakes. And I think one-layer cakes in general, like that Spanish almond cake, that's a dump-and-stir cake. It's pretty easy. Exactly. Uh, there's so much easier than layer cake. So in general, yes, there are tons of recipes around the world that are one-layer cakes, that almond flour would be the go-to way to make those. The texture's good, and it has a great flavor. Sarah? Well, I was going to say fall and chocolate souffle cake that has no flour in it. Sounds delicious. I don't remember (laughs) what gave it its somewhat sturdiness. It's got egg whites that you beat and fold in, and that's why it sort of falls. Uh, There may be almonds in that one as well, but that's a really good one. You can find it on Epicurious. It's called Fallen Chocolate Souffle Cake, so that would be a good one for your husband. I do have a suggestion for you. There's a bakery in Paris called the Rose Bakery. She often doesn't use regular flour. She often uses almond flour and other things similar to that. And get her cookbook. It's great. She has plenty of one-layer simple cakes, and many of which don't use all-purpose flour. So I'll give that a shot. Great. Another place to think about is um, Tandem Bakery in Portland, Maine. Brianna Holt is the baker and co-owner. And okay. she does a lot of interesting things with different kinds of flours, sometimes not regular wheat flour. She does a lot of scones and pies and things and one-layer cakes. And I would definitely okay. check that out online. Because her stuff okay. is unusual, but it's not that hard. Beyond it, almond flowers, are there other kinds of flowers that you think might be good in baking that might be more traditional? If there's such a thing as a cornmeal cake, that might be nice. Excellent. And yeah. probably pretty simple. Okay, cornmeal cake. Yeah. And I do have coconut flour often on hand. Yeah. I would start with Rose Bakery because I think she's really okay. the master of alternative flowers, and that would be a great place to start. Well, I was just so happy to be able to make something that didn't require me adding five different kinds of flowers. I've done that, too. And you have brown rice flour, white rice flour, and potato starch. And there are blends. Yes. Well, Bob's Red Mill, yeah, that's in Portland, and we're lucky to have that here. But that's newish to the market. I think your point is these are dump-and-stir recipes. They're easy to do. Right. The point is they naturally use a non-wheat flour, and they taste great. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Okay, well, well thank you. Thanks yeah. for calling. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, Linda. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. This is Mostly Radio. If you have a culinary question or any question, give us a call 
855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Parker Voigt. Hi, Parker. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from San Antonio, Texas. Oh, lovely town. I have a question about truffle oil. I love listening to the show, and um, y'all had a person ask about deviled eggs, and somehow truffle oil came up, and it turns out that there are some strong opinions about truffle oil. Yep. And so I was just wondering if like, I could get an elaboration on that to know like what the problem with truffle oil is. Well, the trouble with truffle oil, as we know it, is it's mostly synthetically made, and it really has nothing to do with truffles. But besides that, we love it. (laughs) So it comes off much stronger than truffles do. I mean, truffles are somewhat ephemeral. They're usually shaved on to pasta or eggs or whatever at the very end of making a dish because that's the way you capture their flavor. Or when you store them in rice, which is the best way to store them, they'll flavor the rice. But the trouble with truffle oil is it's just so, so intense. It takes over whatever you put on it. And it's not as close to the flavor of real truffle as one would like it to be. And so, you know, sometimes my feeling is if you love that, you know, faux truffle oil, well, then fine. Why not, Chris? Boy, this is... Chris's response to this deviled eggs question about the truffle oil is why I called in, actually. Well, because I add (laughs) truffle oil to my deviled eggs. No, there's one thing I I will say. One thing that horrible artificial truffle oil is good for, if you mash avocados and add a drop or two, to them. That's a new one. Actually, oh, I, nice. I was at a restaurant in Portland, Maine last summer where they did that. It was a sort of a natural foods restaurant and it sounded like a terrible idea. It was actually delicious, but they didn't put much in. Just no, you have to, a little goes a long way. And that was good. But how do you feel about truffle oil? <laughs> now I mean, that we've I, unloaded. It, it definitely is an like a very powerful oil to begin with. And so it adds a lot of flavor. So I'm very selective about when I want to use it, but I've been mainly using it as, I've been cutting it with other oils I mean, like olive oil for risottos, and I found that, like a truffle, you know, at least a truffle flavor and like just a plain risotto can sometimes just like add a bit more to it without sure. having to add, you know, other veggies or something like that. So sure, it's just a powerful ingredient if used with deliberation and restraint, can be great. Just use a couple drops, fine. The thing that we object to though is when you walk into a restaurant before you even get in the door. It smells like truffle oil. It knocks you over. It knocks you over, and that's just really unappealing. But you're right. Use it in small amounts, and sure, why not? That's no problem. Right. I agree. We actually agreed. Amazing. Yeah. I think we should end the show now. <laughs> so, Parker, thanks awesome. for calling. Parker, thanks for calling. Okay. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. I'm really happy that I'm able to make it work out. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. All right, bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, we speak with a chef who prepares delectable meals for monkeys, elephants, and also leafcutter ants. That in just a moment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. So what does it take to feed a zoo? Well, Stacy Kyles, the commissary supervisor at the Oakland Zoo, has been tweaking and perfecting the art of feeding animals for the last six years, which is why they call her the zoo chef. Stacy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So uh, your title is zoo chef. Uh, at least that's your populist title at the Oakland Zoo. You serve 1,000 meals to 600 animals, 10 tons of food a month. So... Do they have very particular diets, each kind of animal, or is it three things on the menu every day? Oh, no, no. Every animal is very specific. It goes right back to what they would eat in the wild and what they need to sustain them individually. I actually go to the same markets that um, most of the restaurants in the East Bay and in San Francisco go to to get their produce. So it's the same quality. There's nothing that's slimy or moldy that immediately goes into compost. We don't serve that to our animals. So let's go through a day. So you start very early in the morning. You buy the food. Could you just take us through the process? It must uh, take a huge amount of time and effort. Well, tomorrow morning I will be here at 5 a.m., drive out to the produce market, meet with uh, three to four vendors, place my orders with them, uh, fill up my truck as much as I possibly can, get the truck back here by about 7 o'clock where I have an apprentice meet me and we prepare diets for the next two hours. It turns out that animals can be very picky. There's a quote here, squirrel monkeys love papaya as long as it's Hawaiian papaya. They do not like Mexican papaya. Is that right? That is right. I just came across a new one recently. We um, normally feed our hornbill birds uh, frozen blueberries, but we got in some fresh blueberries. We just got a whole bunch in and we started feeding that for a couple weeks. Then we stopped getting it. So I went back to frozen. They now refuse the frozen blueberries. So I now have to order fresh blueberries (laughs) specifically for them because it's something that's part of their diet. Uh. The chimps like toasted cinnamon raisin bagels. Yes, they do. And raisin bread. Um, They also do like yogurt. We have to be very specific about the type of yogurt we give them so that it's not high in sugar and has a probiotic that is good for them. Some of the monkeys are picky. You said there's a list and you can't give them the same thing within seven days. So they need a different diet for a seven day diet. Yeah, some of my diet sheets look really crazy because it shows every single day of the week, and there's something different every single day. If they get something two days in a row, then suddenly they don't like it. Uh, Chimps are really crazy. You can hand them something, 
And if you keep handing them the same stuff over and over again, they don't want it anymore. But if you hide it in their enclosure and they find it on their own, that same exact item, mm. it's a gift. And they hide it and they hold on to it like it's precious. And it's like, I just handed that to you yesterday and you didn't want it. <laughs> you say our vulture Jeff prefers black bunnies. That's another one recently. The tigers have decided that they don't like different colored bunnies. They only prefer the white ones. So when the rabbit barn drops off the rabbits, I have to separate them and make sure that the tigers always get the white ones. Otherwise, they will not eat them. Is this a very different role than it might have been 10 or 20 years ago? It feels to me as if the quality and range and diversity of the menu maybe wasn't like this 20 or 30 years ago. Has this field changed a lot since then? I think it has. I think in the past, well, the person that had my position before didn't do um, the budgeting and deal with the vendors as much. They pretty much just cut the food up. The manager would be the ones trying to get the relationships with, with vendors and a lot of times getting stuff that is not sellable to humans then we realized, you know what, we can get really good deals down at the market, the same ones that actual restaurants get. And that's when we started working with them. And it's nice because our produce market actually deals with some of the growers, the actual farms. So sometimes they have an abundance of a crop and they have nobody to sell it right. to. And they now their first instinct is, hey, can the zoo use this? So Friday I received a full pallet of watermelons which was great because it was a really hot weekend. We put them in the freezer and everybody had fun on the weekend. So who's eating the frozen watermelons? Uh, the frozen watermelons, they fed that out to the elephants. Uh, the bears got a lot of those. The grizzly bears and the black bears <laughs> loved those. Uh, for the smaller animals like the chimps, baboons, the bats, the fruit bats, absolutely love watermelon. So did they ever animals ever play with their food like, like a human would? Believe it or not, they give frozen melons to the cats, the lions and tigers, as toys. Hmm. So they will play with it and roll it until they break it open. And because they like the sweet part of it, they'll lick it on the inside. Hmm. Um, but it's not something that's normally part of their diet. It's not something they would in the wild go for. But it's a fun toy to play with until you break it open. And then it's something nice to lick on, like licking a popsicle. <laughs> Do you develop uh, a special relationship with certain animals? There was, I guess, 600 animals at the Oakland Zoo. Do you have a, a special connection with any of them? I do with one of the chimps. My sister is uh, the supervisor of the primates, and so I've been visiting the zoo for a lot of years, and one of the chimps actually shares my birthday. And so I always make it a special point to go see her and talk to her and now some of the times when I'm on the outside exhibit area where the public is and she sees me walking by she'll follow me <laughs> or she'll scream at me to get my attention and I'll say hello and then she's okay with it and we can move on. Um, what about expressions and, and verbalization? Are some of the animals you take care of just have very very funny or interesting personalities? Yes. Um, right now we have two uh, white-hatted gibbons, a uh, boy and a girl that were just recently brought here, introduced from different zoos. 
So Gibbons sing a song and they each have their own part to the song. So the girl knows her part. She's four years old, so she knows how to do this. Mm. And she starts her song and she sings and it's beautiful. And then she stops and then the male's supposed to take over. Well, he's two years old and he doesn't understand yet. So she just looks at him and waits <laughs> and he just looks back at her like, what? What do you want from me? And he does a little whoop, whoop, whoop noise and then she pretty much walks away and she's like, still hasn't gotten it yet. But it's cute to watch her just trying to get it out of him and encourage him. Okay, it's your turn. It's your part of the song. Do you ever think that uh, some of the animals you take care of actually have a sense of humor? Uh, yeah. And how do they express it? <laughs> Primates will throw food back at you. Um, I was at the market and they had, they had some type of little gooseberries that's what they were and i thought oh wow you know they were really expensive but i thought it would be a really nice treat and so i was so excited so i get the gooseberries and i bring them back and then i tell the night keeper let's put that in the chimp diet and they give the little cup to each of the chimps and some of them showed their displeasure by throwing it into the hallway so yeah it was, I was a little sad. I thought I was doing something good and they no, 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 we're not having that. No, thank you. This is an odd question, but do you get the sense the animals know they're in a zoo or they sort of understand the surrounding in some way? The ones that are born here, I don't think so. Um, the keepers work really hard at making sure that their enclosures are natural, something that would normally have in the wild. Um, that's why they work hard also with making sure the food is not something that's just handed to them most of the time, um, that it's outside in the enclosure. They have to go search for it. Uh, the ones that were rescued from the wild, I think in the beginning, they're kind of, they, I would be a little freaked out, um, having to come into an enclosure, but like our California trail project, all the animals that are there are animals that were rescued and would otherwise have been euthanized if we didn't take them in. So 25 years from now, do you think that zoos will continue to evolve in some way? And what are some of the changes you might expect uh, to see down the road? I'm hoping we don't have to have as many animals in a zoo um, because we're losing so many in the wild, which is the frightening part. It's great to have them here as education. So each child that comes here, hopefully they'll get involved and then in the future maybe want to help preserve the animals that are out in the wild. So how's Christmas Day at the zoo? Christmas Day at the zoo is special because... Everybody gives special treats to the animals. Luckily enough, the zoo is closed so that we don't have to deal with the public in that. So we can just concentrate directly on the animals. So they'll put things in special boxes for them and put those out in the exhibits. And the carnivores will go and tear the boxes apart to get the special meat out that they want. Um, a lot of the primates get little special boxes that will be put out in their exhibits that they can tear apart. Unfortunately, I still have to do my job. Um, <laughs> they insist on eating every single so, day. So do the animals actually get a sense that it's a special day or you do Christmas mo mostly for you, not for them? I think it's mostly for us, but for the primates, when you do something special, like I know when the chimps have a birthday, they all know it because they see that something special is being made and then they all get really excited.
do animals get the equivalent of a birthday cake? Yes. <laughs> Depending on what their diet is, yes. They celebrate everybody's birthday. So if it's a carnivore, they'll get a nice little meat cake. If it's a primate, they'll make something special for them. My sister makes sure that everybody gets something special using our Vitamix blender and our rice maker. That should be in our house, but it's actually here at the zoo. <laughs> So, so what do you do with, with the blender and the rice maker? What kind of things do you make? Uh, with the rice maker, she actually will make quinoa mm -hmm. and makes homemade applesauce in that. With the Vitamix, she's making them smoothies. Yeah, they're spoiled. They get smoothies. It, it sounds like the animals at the Oakland Zoo have better diets than 90% of Americans in general, right? It sounds pretty healthy. Yes, they eat way better than we do. I know they eat better than I do. Hmm. Avocados are running $80 a case right now, and I have to get it because it's part of somebody's diet. I can't spend that kind of money on avocados. So I, I have an idea for you. You should write a book called The Oakland Zoo Diet. I think, I, <laughs> I think it would be a bestseller. Look, I, you know, if it's good for the animals, it's, it's good for us. That uh, that's, sounds it's like great. a good idea. Start with a zoo and then, and then feed it to humans, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Stacy Kyles. Her official title is Commissary Supervisor at the Oakland Zoo, also known as the Zoo Chef. You know, we think of animals as gourmands, not gourmets, but maybe the opposite is true. The leafcutter ant doesn't actually eat the leaves. They use them as a compost pile to grow fungus, which is then served to the larvae. The Egyptian vulture throws rocks at ostrich eggs, one of its favorite delicacies, to of course break them open for feeding. The northern shrike, a bird, skewers insects on twigs and barbed wire fences so it can eat them later at leisure. So a zoo chef who treats animals as dinner guests actually makes sense. Every creature enjoys sitting down to a good, well-prepared meal. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, tomato rice with oregano and feta. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, one of our favorite cooks is Diane Kochilas. Uh, she cooks, obviously, Greek food, but she grew up in Manhattan. Her grandfather was from the island of Ikaria. She went back there as a kid, and now she has a home there and also cooking school. So one of our editors, Albert, went to visit her recently, and one of the recipes he came back with is a tomato rice dish which is in fact a risotto. So what makes this a Greek style risotto is really the flavor profile. It's done in a similar way of an Italian risotto, um, but using more bold Greek ingredients. In this case, we're using tomato. Ripe tomato is what Diane would call for. We're calling for cherry or grape tomatoes. When you're buying tomatoes in the supermarket, those are a little more consistently ripe. If you have a tomato plant and you want to use fresh cherry or grape tomatoes, you certainly can. The tomatoes and the onion get cooked until they're soft. We add a little tomato paste to that. And then we add in the arborio rice. That gets cooked until the edges are translucent. And then we need to deglaze. And typically you would do that with white wine or even water. In this case, we're using a Greek aperitif called ouzo. It has a lot more alcohol in it than white wine. So when you add it, you really need to take it off the heat to add that in. So you don't have an explosion of flavor face. and fire. <laughs> yes. 
Okay. It has a really great anise flavor. So if you can't find ouzo or you don't want to buy ouzo, even though it's great to drink, you can use white wine and a teaspoon of fennel seeds. Similar flavors. And our typical method for risotto here is actually quite quick, isn't it? Very quick. It takes only 10 minutes. So we add the water into that mixture and then bring that to a boil. Let it simmer pretty vigorously. And you want to stir it really briskly. Not all the time, but pretty often. And again, it takes about 10 minutes. And then off the heat, we add some of our more delicate flavors. So oregano, lemon juice, and then it gets a final sprinkle of feta cheese, which again makes it really Greek flavored, and a drizzle of olive oil. So we have what amounts to a Greek risotto, tomato rice with oregano and feta. Takes about 20 minutes to make, start to finish. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for tomato rice with oregano and feta at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll picks apart the latest health study on eggs and heart health. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit... 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Molt and I try to solve your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Beth from Jacksonville, Florida. Hi, Beth. How can we help you today? Well, I've been doing a lot more cooking recently, and I'm frankly getting kind of bored with the limited number of vegetables available in my grocery store. And I happened to go into an Indian grocery store, and I saw about 20 fruits and vegetables I had never seen or heard of before. I'm eager to try something new, but I'm a little scared, a little nervous about it, because I can't tell what I'm looking at. Is there any way to tell by the skin or the color or the size of the produce? I think you could try the direct approach and ask them what would be the way that they would recommend cooking this. So why not? But on the other hand, I also wanted to say sometimes you can tell by just looking at something if it's leafy for example, then you would mm. probably cook it the way you would cook kale or chard or, you know, spinach. Okay. Yeah, but some of these, I mean, it, as you said, you're dealing with things that are very different. I would just mm-hmm. hop on my phone and Google it quickly and take a look because a lot of these things have special preparation methods. Some of them have to be soaked if it's very bitter. Like in the Caribbean, for example, some of the root things have to be prepared specially. Yeah, I would just go online very quickly in the store, and I would also speak to the store owners, too. One of the wonderful things about Indian cuisine is, in particular, it's vegetarian cuisine. 
is you might want to go to the library and look at some vegetarian Indian cookbooks. Also, buy a book called Six Seasons. It won the James Beard Award a year ago. Uh, Josh McFadden, I think. I think he does have some meat in it, but it's, it's essentially all vegetables. And that's a really good book if you want to cook different things and cook differently. There's also a book, The Encyclopedia of Asian Food is a good resource. So there's some basic books out there you could probably try, but Six Seasons would be the first one I'd buy. That sounds wonderful. And certainly I would talk to the people in the store. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Lydia. Where are you calling from? Edsonia, Connecticut. Okay. And how can we help you today? I'm interested in knowing how to make some decent gluten-free brownies that don't have too much sugar in them. And that's because you've got a gluten intolerance or you're just interested in gluten-free? I have a gluten intolerance. And I also am trying to cut down on my sugar because I'm just like a borderline before diabetic. Yes, we should all cut down on our sugar. Yeah. Have you tried recipes or tried flours so far? One of my students, who's an aspiring chef, made some for me. And she used all gluten-free flour, and then she sweetened it with evaporated condensed milk or something like that, which is already a little bit sweet. Yes. And it came out, like, really, really heavy. You know how, like, brownies made with regular flour are kind of crumbly? Mm -hmm. Well, they can be either cakey or gooey. You know, there's two camps. Yeah. Okay, so these were kind of, like, on the gooey side, but they weren't really gooey. They were just very dense. Hmm. She said she used almond flour. Oh. Yeah, we use almond flour at Milk Street all the time. It's sort of a go-to flour, and it works great, and obviously it's gluten-free. I mean, King Arthur makes, you know, a gluten-free flour. They make a really good one. Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. And I think Serious Eats website has a pretty good gluten-free flour recipe. recipe. The problem is you'll have to go get a gluten-free brownie recipe. I don't think just substituting one for the other. I think... You're probably better off finding a brownie recipe specifically made that's gluten-free. But I would, okay. I would start with that, with a King Arthur substitute. The trouble with gluten-free flours, I mean, we're so glad we have them, but every single one has different components. So some of them might have some chickpea flour in it, you know, which... Xanthan gum. Yeah. Right. There's so many... Starches. Yeah. Rice flours. It could be rice flour, brown rice flour. So there's different flavor profiles that you're going to get, too from the flowers. We've made a few cakes. There's a Spanish cake, almond mm-hmm. cake, that's made entirely with almond flour mm-hmm. we just made recently mm-hmm. that was pretty much to die for. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. lacking in texture or anything. So I wonder if you could make a brownie entirely with almond flour. I bet you could. Wouldn't it taste a bit it, like almonds? Though? Well, chocolate and almonds go together. Yeah. <laughs> Chocolate-covered yes. almonds, you know. Yeah, of course. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Lydia, thank you so much. Okay, thank okay. you. Yeah, Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for a cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Mitch Gibbs, and this is my tip. I bought a sous vide immersion circulator, one of the ones that are very popular right now, and initially only thought about using it for its intended purpose, cooking food slowly to a precise temperature. However, it can also be used to speed up defrosting. If, for example, I forget to defrost some frozen chicken for dinner, I'll put the chicken in a bag in a water bath, set my circulator to its lowest temperature so it isn't adding any heat, and let it go. The circulating water speeds up the defrosting process dramatically 
automatically while keeping the chicken within safe temperatures. Within an hour or so, I've got gently defrosted chicken ready to cook however I need. Thanks. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, that's 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from regular contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, We're good here at Milk Street, and we're uh, awaiting your words of wisdom. I want to talk about eggs, which keep getting back into the news so crazily over and over and over again. It seems the debate will never die. Well, I I think we talked about this. I remember back in the 80s, I was in Anaheim, California at the Natural Product Show, and there was a billboard that said, four eggs a week are okay. Mm. That, that was from the egg board. And I'm just going like, is that what we've come to? Is like yeah. one every other day or what? And it's such a blasé recommendation to say something's okay. I mean, <laughs> not saying good or bad, I guess, acceptable. The, the recent controversy started, you know, just a couple months ago. There was a huge study in JAMA, arguably, you know, one of the most read medical journals in the world, that basically came down and said, once again, we've done a huge study and we've proved that if you eat eggs they're going to kill you. There were were all these articles that came out and said, has this reopened the debate? Uh, Has this, you know, really made us question it once again? Then they argued that, you know, they they pooled together like 30,000 adults from six huge studies, uh, followed them for many, many years, I think a median of like 17 and a half years. And they basically showed that for every couple of eggs that you eat, uh, it's going to increase your risk of heart disease by, you know, 17%. The more eggs you eat, the higher it's going to go up. That that even the absolute risk difference went up a couple of percentage points, which is a big deal. And given that, you know, we've talked about this before, and I've certainly written about it many times and argued that, that eggs are totally fine for you, lots of people start to question whether we're wrong. Even the USDA guidelines uh, in the last few years have come out and said, hey, stop worrying about eggs. The cholesterol is really not a nutrient of concern. But the biggest thing that was shocking about this is if you were willing to read past the top lines and past what most of the people in the media were saying, and you went to even just look in the appendix, if you controlled for other things they were eating, things like meat, or things like fat, that the relationship with eggs went entirely away. And that, you know, if you adjust for red meat or fish or poultry, the relationship between eggs and higher cardiovascular disease goes away. So here's my question. The p-value simply tells you the likelihood of something other than what you tested for in the experiment leading to the cause of the results. So in this particular study, if they, if they weren't looking at steak and fish and other parts of the diet, wouldn't the P factor be extremely high? That is, that the, the likelihood is not it was just a function of eggs, that something else might have contributed to the result. Broadly and broad strokes, you have it right, that the P value tells us how well the data that we have here fit a belief that there would say be no relationship. And if the p-value is what we say less than 0.05, then we say that there's less than a 5% chance that these data fit the hypothesis that eggs and and you know and cardiovascular disease are not related. And they say, "Oh god, they are related because we didn't find that." But the problem with doing these sort of retrospective studies is that exactly as you say, it's that like, well, sometimes people who eat eggs, maybe they're more likely to smoke. How can you do a study of the effect of diet on health 
if you don't control for the other factors in the diet other than the one you're trying to assess. I'm going so far to say at this point that I don't think we should do any more studies um, where we do that in sort of retrospective analysis. We're gaining no new knowledge here. We just keep throwing old study on top of old study and trying to pick it apart. If we want to know something about eggs, we should set up a randomized controlled trial and randomize people to get eggs or not. And when we do that, we find it doesn't make a difference, which is how we know it's not true. <laughs> there you go. This is this is maddening. When this study came out, I spent a good week absolutely losing my mind because watching this kind of thing happen over and over, we've done careful, good studies. We know what the result is. Everyone has come to a sort of an agreement, and it just takes one paper like this to drag us back 10, 15 years ago to where we didn't know whether this was true or not. I will not go back to eating egg white omelet. No one else should either. There's no, this has not told us anything we did not know before. People should not be more worried about eggs than they were last year. Science is supposed to be science. It's not supposed to be a point of view. It's just the problem is that science is complicated and it's, you know, this is where people say, but this study shows it's so much deeper than that, though. You have to sort of be able to look behind the study and say, like, well, does it really show that? And, and there's, a, there's still a hierarchy of research. And at the pinnacle is the randomized controlled trial or the collection of randomized controlled trials. We have both of those with respect to eggs, and they do not show that they raise cholesterol that much or that they are linked to heart disease. Dr. Carroll, we're both ready for our cocktail. <laughs> we're both pretty worked up. Yep. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a couple of scrambled eggs. Enjoy. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. So eggs are bad, wine is bad, fat is bad, sugar is bad. Maybe it's not the ingredients we should worry about, so here's my list of bad things. Eating while walking. Even dogs sit down to eat. Eating while standing at the sink. Better table manners are a happier solution to messy drips and spills. Eating while talking, this should be a federal offense in my opinion. Eating in bed, this is only second to eating while talking. So eat and drink what you want. Just do it, please, sitting at a table with a napkin in your lap and only speak between bites. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, The Milk Street Cookbook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>